Welcome to Deconstructing Yourself, the podcast for metamodern mutants interested in meditation, hardcore dharma, neuroscience, Ursula K. Le Guin, predictive processing, tantra, awakening, beauty, love, and much, much more. My name is Michael Taft, your host on the show, and in this episode, I'll be speaking once again with Hamid Ali. A. Hamid Ali, whose pen name is A. H. Almas, is founder of the Diamond Approach to Self-Realization, a contemporary teaching that developed within the context of both ancient spiritual teachings and modern depth psychological theories. Almas has authored 18 books about spiritual realization, including the Diamond Heart series, The Pearl Beyond Price, The Void, and The Alchemy of Freedom. And now, without further ado, I give you the episode that I call Non-Dual Love with A. H. Almas. Hamid, welcome to the Deconstructing Yourself podcast. I'm happy to be here with you, Michael. Yeah, this is, I believe, our third podcast together over the last many years. So it's always a real pleasure, and it's great to have you back. Good to be back. Good. So the main topic today is that you have a new book out entitled Non-Dual Love, Awakening to the Loving Nature of Reality. And as I understand it, this is the third book in a trilogy about love. Is that correct? It is, yes. And I think last time we talked about the book right before this. Love Unveiled. Yeah, and that was very interesting. And so this is a trilogy of books about love. What can you tell us about how this trilogy came about and how it unfolded and when you were really working on this material, what that was like? So all this material actually comes from teaching I've been doing for the last 20 or 30 years or so. And I haven't written specifically a book about love for many years because I was trying at the beginning to put out knowledge that is not usually spoken of. My first books, like The Pearl Beyond Price, The Point of Existence, you know, like Runaway Realization, all these books are things that most teachings don't talk about. So I was putting them out to put out something that is new and useful in the spiritual field. And then at some point, I realized that many people started to think that this teaching doesn't talk about love, although I do mention love because it is the prime motivation in this path is love for the truth, love for reality. And I said, well, maybe it's time to do something about love that many people talk and write about, you know, which is not a new topic, like the pearl beyond price. You rarely ever hear anybody talking about it. I mean, you have to search hard in the literature to find a reference to the pearl beyond price. But love, all the poets talk about it, everybody talks about it, all the songs talk about it, all the literature talks about it, spiritual teaching, <laughs> talk about love, all of that. So I wanted to bring out something about love, partly to show that this teaching has love, and also how this teaching uses love, how does this teaching looks at love, view love and experiences it. And also in the same way, I wanted, as usual, to put out something that is usually not done about love, which is to discuss love phenomenologically, 
What is it we experience inside us? What is love? What is the feeling, the affect, the phenomenology, the texture, the taste of love? Not what it does, not how it makes us feel and behave. Like most of the literature is stories around love and uh, romance or, you know, even love for God, you know, the passion and the, and the great length it takes us to express it. But even the poets about love, take Rumi, for instance, or Hafiz, they talk about love all the time, but mostly about what makes us think, what makes us feel, what makes us want to do, the longing, appreciation, the perception of beauty, and the need to be near to God and melt in the God. But it's rarely you find, I think you could find it, in some of the classic literature like Rumi or uh, Kabir, but it's not emphasized much about what is the actual feel, what are we experiencing inside, what's happening inside us, what is love, in other words, what is the ontological nature of love. That's what I wanted to put out in these books. And I wanted to also show the three books uh, that's why i made it into a series first book love unveiled is how love appears special to human being has different qualities there is an appreciative liking love there is some kind of a melting love that has to do with connection community and union all of them and there's a, a passionate ecstatic love that people experience when they are in love or when they are deeply in the middle of the devotional path where they're ecstatically, passionately longing for loving God. These are different kinds of love that are relevant for human life in general, for love life and relational life, but also important for a spiritual path. A second book, Nandual Love, you know, me and Shambhala went back and forth, what the title is. Because really it's a dimension of non-dual reality, a dimension of non-dual consciousness that is love. And so the real word or name for it is divine love, because it's absent, has no ego, has no sense of being an individual. It is just the ocean of love like the heart of God. However, Shambhala said there are many books with that title, Divine Love, Universal Love, many books. So finally, we settled on non-dual love, meaning it is love that is non-dual in the sense it is understood from the perspective of non-dual experience, which is different from the first book, which is about individual experience. One human being feeling love toward another, even though the other might be God. In the first book, love is a presence, a conscious presence, aware of itself, knowing itself. Nandual love is the same way. However, it is an ocean without shore. It's endless, infinite. It's a big expanse. So that brings in more like what is the actual love without it, seeing it as an individual thing you feel towards somebody, more that as a beingness, as love. Third book, 
which is going to be called, I think, the beloved, is the source of all love, which is what love ultimately loves. So the beloved means the true beloved that is at the depth of the heart. That is both what the heart really ultimately loves, where all loves are basically expressions and uh, particularization of, and also the source from everything, including love. So that gives you an idea of the series of books. Very good. So this is actually the second book, okay, and there will be a third book coming. Now, you started to talk about this, and it's interesting, you know, there's so many different types of love, or different ways to feel love, and you have different Greek words for it, like eros and agape, and other words, and you pointed towards several, I think, seven different types, or nine in the first book. And yet, in English, which generally English has a lot of vocabulary words for things, but we've just got this one word, love, to point to all these different things. And yet there is some underlying phenomenological experience or similarity that makes these all come under the title of love. So maybe you get into this in the third book, I don't know, but what makes all these different ways that we can feel love what unites them? How are they similar? What's the common thread there? And I think that's a very good question. Well, there's several properties about love, which is really an expression of our real nature. And one way our real nature manifests that we call love. And one important thing about it is a sense of goodness, complete, pure goodness. Goodness in all ways. Feels good, wants the other to feel good. Its action is good. Good in the way human beings understand good. Not in the sense of judgment or morality, but good in the sense it's of benefit. It's useful. It helps. It, it helps people thrive, be more themselves, be happier. So good, it feels good, and its effect is an enhancement of experience and life by optimizing it. And also, it's good in the sense it wants the good for the other. That's one thing important about love, that the true love is purely and self-centered. So it is of its very nature, when one is experiencing love or being loved, and that it's a natural art of love toward others and reality in general, our environment, our other being, a human being, friends, family. And when the love emerges like that, it's like the love had the tendency to express itself in action and words in a way that will has the other person happiness and well-being in mind. So that's one thing. That's true about all the kinds of love. It's a goodness, and it wants the good for the other, the happiness for the other, and also has in it a sense of beauty. It opens the eye of beauty. When you say beautiful, we don't just say beautiful. We say it's beautiful because we like something about it. If we don't love it, beautiful is sort of uh, abstract. It's hard to say something is beautiful without 
feeling that you appreciate it. So beauty and love are very much intertwined, very much connected. And the other thing besides that, it has a sense of generosity in it. This is out of flows, overflows, and it's a giving. It's a generosity, it's a giving, a selfless giving, unthinking giving, giving without thinking of what one will get from it. And snatches, not giving because I want to give. Giving happens naturally when love is there. Giving in all ways. But the main way of giving is giving of oneself. Giving of one's time, of one's being, of one's heart, of one's knowledge. You know, and it could be material giving, you know. When you love somebody, you also want to give them good food, cook for them, and make them nice tea, you know, give them gifts and all of that. That's, you know, like a romantic love. That's what people do. They give gifts, they send flowers, and all. but, you know, you give beautiful things to show appreciation and so that the other person will be happy. Just an external kind of giving. But the giving of love goes much deeper and much more faceted than that. So all these things that I'm talking about are true about all the kinds of love. And you're right, the English language is limited in terms of how many expressions we have for love. Other languages like the Persian or the Arabic or other languages have many terms for love to give you the different facets, different inflection, different flavors, you know, of love. It's amazing how, like I knowing my original language, Arabic, how many words there are that gives us, you know, for English, you have to say a sentence or two to describe the word. There's no word for it. Yeah, and generally, English has such a vast vocabulary for everything. And yet, in this area, it's very limited. Yeah, it has some words, you know, but not as much as some other languages. You're right. So sometimes when people talk about non-duality, especially the nature of awareness and awareness itself, which I think you know I teach about this quite a bit, but it's interesting. I often hear people asking or talking about this idea that awareness itself is somehow neutral or doesn't have any flavor of anything, any emotion at all, let alone love is somehow this sort of like complete neutrality. And that's not my experience at all. I think awareness itself is tremendously loving. But I'm curious, given that you have this book, it's called Non-Dual Love, what would you say to that if someone was like, isn't awareness itself just kind of this like totally neutral observer? No, I wouldn't say awareness, especially when we experience awareness in itself, the actual fabric or the medium of awareness. I wouldn't say neutral in the sense, you know, like effectless. It has a sense of aliveness, and it has a sense of radiance, it has a sense of freshness, and all of that. But it doesn't taste sweet. Mm. It doesn't have the sense of appreciation in it. It's awareness that is non-judgmental, that is non-condemning, that is impartial, you know. But love is more of an actual overflow, an actual giving. It's more dynamic than pure awareness. Awareness is, in some sense, 
more fundamental than love. It's more basic. Love is adding another layer to awareness, which is really bringing out some of the potential of awareness that are not manifest, not explicit. So awareness and love are not separate, are not to think. Love is a potential or a side of awareness. And awareness is implicit in love. And some teaching, like the Sufi teaching, Christian teaching, they make love be the ultimate fabric of reality. If you go to the East, they make awareness be the ultimate fabric of reality. And I think our true nature has both. Our real reality has both, and putting them in a hierarchy is you can do it, but it's not necessary. And so how do you see that? It sounds like you actually do put them in a hierarchy where awareness is more fundamental. More fundamental in the sense you can have awareness without love, but you cannot have love without awareness. Mm -hmm. Love implies that love is aware of itself. It has consciousness in it. And while awareness can be pure, just perception, just pure experience of perception without any effect, without any inclination one way or another, you know. So it's in that sense a fundamental. But I see it as there are many dimensions to our fundamental nature. I usually think there are five dimensions, actually. Love and awareness are just two of them. And what are the other three? One dimension is pure presence, beingness, the ontological ground, the pure presence or pure being. The other dimension is the creative dynamism, meaning the ground of reality is not just pure stillness or the fact that things happen in the world, changes happen in the world from an underworld place where it's just the nature of everything. Well, how do things happen then? That shows that there is a dynamic, creative dimension to awareness or to our true nature, which makes things happen, makes things appear and change. And of course, the other dimension is that of pure emptiness, pure spacious emptiness, transparent emptiness. That is just almost, you could say, the source is the emptiness that where everything comes from. And you know, the Buddhists emphasize the emptiness more than others, and they really do a great job of that to show what is emptiness. But emptiness is a dimension, I see a dimension. However, you cannot have emptiness by itself, because emptiness is always an emptiness of reality, the emptiness of awareness, the emptiness of love. You know what I mean? Yes. Emptiness by itself will not have awareness. So fascinating, especially the emphasis that you put on the, the creativity and the dynamism. That energy is so apparent sometimes and very often not focused upon. Yeah, Dzogchen has it for Dzogchen and Mahamudra, they have. Absolutely. They, they're Tsal, they call it Tsal, I think, which is there's a dynamic, energetic, creative art of awareness. That's right. Okay, good. So in terms of your first book, you were talking about different kinds of, let's say, personal love. What makes love non-dual when we move into the topic of your second book? How do we go from kind of this personal expression to this more boundless expression? Yeah, so the individual expression in the first book 
is that how love flows through the human heart in different qualities. So it is individual and personal. So a human being feels it toward somebody else or a sunset or a flower or the universe. Well, non-dual love is not individual. To know and non-dual love is to know that oneself has a boundless ocean of goodness and sweetness and nectar. An ocean of nectar it has no shores. Sufis call it the ocean with no shores. I like that expression. But it also, you know, other teachings to call it as boundless or unlimited or uh, has no end. So it's basically the metaphor here is spatial, meaning it has no end in space. When you experience the medium, the first kind of love, you feel the medium, it's, it feels like it's in your heart, and your heart overflowing or effulging or unfolding and all. But here, no, it's not just in the heart. The whole universe is a heart. The whole expanse is like a heart. That's why it's called divine love or the heart of God. Some people call it, I think Christianity will call it the heart of God, because it's love that doesn't have separation between one thing and it's non-dual. And so when we experience non-duality from the perspective of love, we see that this usual non-dual experience, which is there's no separation of subject and object, no separation between one phenomenon and another, the trees and the house and the sky and me and my body, they're all expression of the same medium. There are different variations form the same medium. And this medium is pure love, pure sweetness, pure goodness, radiant, loving, golden goodness. In that sense, it's non-dual. That's beautiful, Amid. Obviously, the minute anyone hears about this, the next question is, well, how do I recognize that experience or tap into that experience or start to head in the direction of that experience? What would you say? As you know, Michael, non-dual experience is not easy to come by. <laughs> you know, for most people, the individual is easier, you know? Yes. They feel the quality of being, quality of nature, true nature, as in the, coming through the heart or coming through the mind is easier because you still retain your sense of being the individual. That's not challenged. Here, the sense of being an individual is gone. And the sense of being an individual as a limited form, usually that's how the ego is, appears as an individual. However, you know, individual doesn't have to be an ego form, but usually it is. And non-dual teaching will usually take the individual means ego. I don't usually take that. But I say it as it's like a individual for me, it's like a wave in the ocean. There's no wave without an ocean. But the non-dual is the ocean itself, the whole ocean. And it's not easy to get there because we have to let go of the sense of being a separate individual. We have to let go, go through our separateness, which is the obstacle in all non-dual experience, the sense of being separate being, a separate something. The separateness 
is a mark of duality. Like there's subject and object. That tree is separate from this tree. It really exists on its own. And that person exists apart from the other person. The cars are all different and owned by different people and different, you know, registrations and all of that. But in the non-duality, those variations don't disappear, except they're all seen as not separate in the sense, although different cars are the Mercedes and the Mercedes, the Ford is a Ford. However, they all are made out of the same thing. They're all made out with the same non-dual medium, whether it's awareness or in this case, love. So in that sense, it's unusual for most human beings to even conceive of that possibility. But the non-dual experience, that's what we experience. Doesn't mean there is non-dual awareness apart from the world. No, non-dual. What makes it non-dual is that all the whole world is inseparable from it, and the whole world is an expression of it, including all of our experiences, all the thoughts, feelings, and sensation, all are expression of the same medium. And so the main obstacle is usually the sense of separateness when it comes to love. Also, other obstacles, as usual, is issues around love itself, whether we are loved or not, the hurts and wounds about love, and especially also the hurt of wound in relationship to reality as a whole, which for some people, it's a relationship to the deity or to the divine or to God. For instance, one thing I discovered in exploring divine love or non-dual love, not all human beings, at least in the West, they're all angry at God. Even the real devout ones are angry at God because God isn't appearing the way it says in the Bible, the way they expect, the loving God, because there's trouble in the world, they have trouble, they have suffering, and especially from childhood, when a child you know, hear about God or the God is there, God loves us. And then say, where is God? So we all grow up with some kind of anger, some kind of disappointment in the divine. And that issue arises when we dealing with divine love or non-dual love. We have to deal with our anger or hatred toward the good, toward goodness itself. Many people will say, no, no, I don't have that. Well, yes, I know many people are not aware of it. But worked with deeply, we all will find that we have some place in us, a rejection of the good. So that is one of the obstacles that one has to see and let go of, see through and understand, recognize that how a child will develop, you know, looking at how things are, logically, it makes sense be mad at an absent you know goodness that's supposed to be there for you because who is it who gets everything good the way they deserve they really need as a human being so there is a doubt force and there is skepticism and about whether there is real goodness in the universe and underneath it there's a real anger or hatred about it 
And I call that the issue of the beast. You know, Christianity as the beast is the devil. Or a particular obstacle that arises in integrating divine love or non-dual love, which is basically recognized that the beast, devil, is something we have, all of us, in our depth of our consciousness, which is nothing but the rejection of the good, the rejection of true goodness, pure goodness, selfless goodness. That is one other big issue we need to let go of to be able to experience, uh, be open to this dimension of non-dual love. So the usual obstacle for all non-dual experiences, which is the separateness, the other one is rejection or the aggression toward goodness. That also can be an obstacle. We have to recognize it in us, experience it without judgment, and understand it so that it stops being an obstacle, so that it dissolves, because it is just a posture of the mind. So fascinating. I'm curious to kind of artificially separate these. We could have someone work with their separateness and come into some non-dual experience and then start opening up into love in that space, that kind of boundless space. But I'm curious, in your teaching, can you also take someone the other way where going through love, the heart opening dissolves the boundaries? Yes. In fact, love is very much needed to dissolve the bond. Without love, it's very difficult to dissolve the boundaries. So that's one way, actually, of dissolving the boundaries, the constricting or limiting or rigid boundaries of the ego, is when we recognize there is love. When love arises in us or in our guide or supporting us, like there is a love that is caressing, that is comforting, that wants the best for us. When we see that, we are more able to let go of, of our separateness, which is a protection, a defense, really, against uh, experience. So yes, love is actually very helpful for the realization of non-duality. But also, you see, love and non-duality is, is a very big story. Like, for instance, you can experience non-dual realization without having much heart, without having much love. Yep. And I think you know that. You know that our teachers who say they're non-dual, but some of them have more heart than others. That's very true. Yeah, I mean, take Dilgu Kense, for instance. He's not only pure non-dual, he's effulging with love. He's overflowing with love. You see his face and his smile, and it's like it's all goodness. You don't see it in all non-dual teachers. But that means the person can experience awareness, but they can't experience the dimension of love, though. That's what it means. It's possible for that to happen. I think that's very true. And so let's assume that someone has some access or recognition of boundlessness. How would you guide them towards, let's say, working with this anger at God or the love wound that you're describing and towards opening themselves up to non-dual love? I think, you know, in the way I teach and the path I work with, it is easier first to experience love that is more individual, like liking, true appreciation of somebody, or true melting love that makes you feel connected to somebody else or to a community. 
recognizing the actual presence of love, knowing the presence of that love is true, authentic, pure presence, true consciousness. Then the question of how it expands, let go of its boundaries, can bring up then the other issues, like the separateness and the rejection of the good. Because we have to see that the goodness is everywhere. And if you just feel love in your heart, that is not challenged yet. That is not questioned yet. But as we experience individual, personal love, we know what love is. We just don't know that it can be an ocean. And working in its limitation, how it is staying localized and dualistic, what's in the way of becoming, you know, unbounded. And that will bring up the issue of separateness become clear. And also the other issue like rejection of the goodness. And there's other major issue, which is greed, wanting more. Mm-hmm. Greed at the depth is a feeling of impoverishment, like needing more and more and more. And in the book, in the teaching, I use the image of Jabba the Hutt. <laughs> I remember that, yeah. And there's a whole chapter about Jabba the Hutt. Jabba the Hutt in the Star Wars movies is a big guy, fat and obese and all of that, but he can't have enough food, can't have enough possession, can't have enough power, can't have enough entertainment, can't have enough. He wants more and more and more. He's a good representation and the depth of the soul, the depth of consciousness, there is that kind of impoverishment, which has to do with the lack of recognition of abundance. Because if we see the abundance, we see the non-dual love. So all these, I mentioned three in the main issues. If one works through any one of them, we begin to have a possibility of experiencing this non-dual love. Thank you. Yeah, that's really, really fascinating. I'm curious, you know, sometimes when people start really tuning into this boundlessness of love, especially in kind of a overflowing way towards not just objects of personal love around them, people or animals around them or objects or poems or something. But when it starts to be much more impersonal, so to speak, it's spreading out to maybe people they don't know and places around the world and beings they haven't met and so on, there can be together with that opening, this kind of tremendous sadness that comes with that because of how much suffering there is. Yeah, Mm -hmm. very true. And so what would you say about that? Well, because love also is the source of compassion. Love is a goodness and wants what is best for people, but when it sees their pain, it wants what's best for them. So it wants to heal the pain, wants to heal the suffering. And that appears as a warmth, a warm kind of love. Yes. Delicacy and empathy and sympathy and softness, tenderness. So love appears as people call it compassion or kindness. But the kindness is nothing but loving. I call it loving kindness because it has a tenderness and one thing was best for the other, which is the same thing as love, except it's looking at the person having difficulty. While love is 
looking at a person who sort of okay, or even if they're suffering, but wanting them to be happy. You know, the kindness want them not to suffer. When you have the fullness of love, he's not only wanting not to suffer, he wants them to thrive, he wants them to feel rich and abundant and to be fulfilled and happy. And so you're describing, especially non-dual love, as an ocean of nectar, right? Everything is made of sweetness, that kind of vision. Yet, as you know, you can also bring up this real sadness that is still an aspect of sweetness or has sweetness in it, but it's definitely a different image that's evoked than like an ocean of nectar. It is very, very true. It's a different expression of love. Yeah. And so how would you work with that? To me, that's actually deepening the opening of the heart, right? It's a positive direction. And yet, I'm curious, how would you talk to someone about that? Well, everybody has suffering and pain. And that suffering and pain, for it to heal, it requires kindness. It requires the healing balsam of compassion. And it's necessary for human being. So that's why love, when it sees suffering, turns from being golden to being emerald green and tender and very sympathetic and wants to heal, you know. And it's natural for somebody who has an open heart to really have that kind of loving kindness. It's not exactly sadness, but very close to sadness because it has warmth and gentleness and can make us sad also because we see suffering. See, But the true response to suffering is compassion, is kindness. Sadness is recognizing the suffering, but then to go further, to feel something that can heal the suffering, that brings kindness, suffering, compassion, that can help us take action, that will do something. You know, one important thing here, Michael, it's important to recognize in the non-dual universe, right? Because in the non-dual universe, like there are no individuals, everything is one thing, everything is one expanse, everything is just you know, true nature and its awareness and compassion and, you know, and beingness or emptiness. And that the individual, the ego or the individual is some kind of illusion or some kind of a mirage. And the way I look at it, if the individual, which means human individuals, basically, if their experience of themselves as separate individuals, as beings, their own beingness, is an illusion, is a mirage, is an error, why does true nature has love and compassion in it? Who is it for? Compassion and love is only needed for individuals who can have suffering, who need to be happy. It's not for God. True nature doesn't need it. God doesn't need it. Only individuals who can suffer need it. So it is inherent in our fundamental non-dual nature, a recognition that there are beings who suffer, beings who can be happy. So there's recognition of that the individual beings, that some of them are human beings, are real expression of the ocean. And they are not a delusion. We might 
recognize them, you know, in a distorted way, in an incomplete way, but there is a reality to the uniqueness of the individual. And I think love and compassion, things like that, shows that reality says so, not me. It's not my view. Reality points to that truth. Yes. Yeah, that makes sense. Because this is ignored by many non-dual teachers, and that's why I'm, I'm putting it in here. Because they talk about, oh, well, yeah, you just don't see yourself as what you are. You have this illusion, wrong idea that you are an individual. And I always say that's not a good way to approach somebody. It's unkind. You're rejecting them. They feel rejected. They feel they're being set aside. <laughs> and people talk about, you know, killing the ego, getting rid of it. Well, you don't kill the ego. You understand that. You have compassion for it and reveal the true beingness behind it. That's right. There's no reason to have this fundamental aggression towards the arising of an ego. Yeah. Arising ego is suffering. It's consciousness and suffering that appears as ego. And we need to recognize the importance of being human. And one thing important about a human being, what sets a human being apart from all other beings, is that human being can have heart, not only heart, the fullness of heart. In fact, in the Sufi tradition, they have what they call the animal soul, and then they have the later on development they call the human soul. And say so the difference between the animal soul and the human soul, the animal soul doesn't have heart. The human soul has heart. But the human being has heart, but also the potential to know reality, to know non-dual truth. You have to have a being who knows non-dual truth, who will know it. Without being, is there any knowledge of non-dual truth that doesn't come through a particular individual? If we look all around us, it's always a particular being that talks about non-dual truth, who experiences non-dual truth. So true, you could say non-dual truth experiencing itself as an individual, that is a valid way of saying it, but the individual is needed. And the individual that we are is a human individual. And if you recognize the importance and the preciousness of a human being, like Buddhism puts it as the preciousness of a human life, that if we're born as a human, it's precious because we have the opportunity to have enlightenment. But you wonder, why is it? Only humans can have enlightenment, you know? And what's the importance of that? So they recognize the importance of the human being because to be human, you can be enlightened. But I think, you know, we don't have, that's the beginning of recognizing the importance of a human being. It's not only that we can be enlightened, but human being is the being who can allow true being to express itself, to express its secrets, to manifest its jewels. They cannot manifest those jewels through, you know, rocks. They are not conscious that way. You know, an animal, their consciousness is not developed enough to recognize spiritual reality. So human beings are precious that way. If we see that way, it becomes difficult to want to harm another human being. Because all human beings have that potential. They're all precious. They're all miracles of creation, of reality. 
and they go, they all have the possibility of having heart. Many of them, their hearts are not open and closed. So because of that, they have hated, they have anger, they have aggression, they can't kill, they can't think of killing. But somebody whose heart is open, who knows their nature, especially if they know their heart, the thought of harming somebody just doesn't arise. Doesn't make sense. When I see people think of killing, oh, let's get revenge. I said, what are you talking about? Like, you know, in the court system, when you somebody is killed without their family, they said, what do you want? I want satisfaction. What does satisfaction? They get a death penalty. I said, really? I mean, that's one thing another human being to be damaged. It's revenge. That means the heart is not completely open. People call it justice. I call it misguided justice. You might want to stop them from killing other people, but why make them suffer? One who has love in their heart doesn't want others to suffer, regardless how bad they are. So that is, again, the importance of a human being which can have a full heart, heart that brings in all of love. And human consciousness, of course, can also, is a potential for it to know all of reality, all the secret of reality. Oh, not all of it, as much of it as we can in a lifetime. So while each precious jewel and, and a necessary vehicle for reality to know itself and to express itself and to live. Thank you so much, Hamid. It's a real pleasure to talk with you again and hear your wisdom. And I thank you, Michael, for giving me the opportunity to do something that hopefully will be useful, will light some fire, bring out some love, some the importance of love, the importance of the human being, the importance of compassion we talked about. If somebody learns a little bit of that and gets a taste of that, I'll be happy. Thank you so much. Okay. Till next time, Michael. Till next time. Bye-bye. Bye. That's it for this episode of Deconstructing Yourself. I'd like to let you know about an upcoming retreat with me this summer in Costa Rica. From August 3rd to the 10th, we will come together to focus on non-dual meditation practice with a particular theme of embodiment of awakening in meditation and in life. For seven days, I'll be giving non-dual meditation teachings, practices, and guided meditations, as well as personal meditation instruction to each member of the group. The retreat will be hosted at the Blue Spirit Retreat Center, located in the Nosara region of Costa Rica's Pacific Coast. The retreat center is perched on a hilltop overlooking the ocean and a three-mile white sand beach that is a protected turtle refuge. The pristine nature, subtropical climate, and members of the Deconstructing Yourself Sangha will create a unique environment for your meditation retreat. If you're interested, check out deconstructingyourself.org where there's a link to the information page. I look forward to seeing you there. If you enjoyed the podcast, please recommend it to a friend or talk about it on social media. Doing that helps it find its way to more people who might be interested. 
If you're moved to support the podcast, you can do that by contributing to the production costs on my Patreon page. That's at patreon.com slash Michael Taft. The money goes to support the recording, production, and bandwidth costs of this program, which are substantial. By contributing to Patreon, you're making it possible for me to continue to create and share these conversations as often as possible. A special perk for high-level contributors is a monthly or even bi-monthly event with me on Zoom, where you can ask me any meditation questions you have. I deeply appreciate your support. I also have a number of free resources for you, beginning with my YouTube channel. There are hundreds of hours of free guided meditations and videos there, so if you're interested, that's quite a large resource and offered to you completely free of charge. The channel address on YouTube is MWT111, or you can just search my name, Michael Taft. I encourage you to subscribe to the channel and join me each week for a new live guided meditation session. If you'd like to interact with a broad community of people interested in meditation, particularly those who engage with my YouTube meditations, I have a free Discord server called Deconstruct You. That's Deconstruct and then just the single capital letter U. There are a large number of discussion channels there, and it's free, so hop on the server and introduce yourself. And of course, there's the deconstructingyourself.com website itself, which has articles, interviews, and more about meditation going back over 12 years at this point. So be sure to check that out. Beyond these free options, I also have a number of paid online courses to help you grow and develop in your spiritual practice. You can find out about those either by signing up for my email list at deconstructingyourself.com slash signup or at the site deconstructingyourself.org. I look forward to seeing you in class. The Deconstructing Yourself podcast has always had excellent sound, which is the result of an amazing audio engineer and amazing human being named Stephen McNamara. He's an all-things audio person with many decades of experience in producing music and spoken word audio. If you're interested, you can contact him at his website, yogitar.com. That's Y-O-G-I-T-A-R dot com. Music on the Deconstructing Yourself podcast is a track by Peter Bauman entitled Crossing the Abyss from his album Machines of Desire. Thank you for listening. <laughs>